Section 31 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 16. The Crusades, Their Origin and Their Success, Part 1. Amongst the great events of European history, none was for a longer time in preparation or more naturally brought about than the Crusades. Christianity, from her earliest days, had seen in Jerusalem her sacred cradle. It had been, in times past, the home of her ancestors, the Jews, and the centre of their history, and afterwards the scene of the life, death, and resurrection of her divine founder. Jerusalem became, more and more, the holy city. To go to Jerusalem, to visit the Mount of Olives, Calvary, and the tomb of Jesus, was, in their most evil days, and in the midst of their obscurity and their martyrdoms, a pious passion of the early Christians. When, under Constantine, Christianity had ascended from the cross to the throne, Jerusalem had fresh attractions for Christian faith and Christian curiosity. Temples covered and surrounded the Holy Sepulchre, and at Bethlehem, Nazareth, Mount Tabor, and nearly all the places which Jesus had consecrated by his presence and his miracles, were seen to rise up churches, chapels, and monuments dedicated to the memory of them. The Emperor Constantine's mother, St. Helena, was at seventy-eight years of age the first royal pilgrim to the holy places. After the pagan revival, vainly attempted by the Emperor Julian, the number and zeal of the Christian visitors to Jerusalem were redoubled. At the beginning of the fifth century, St. Jerome wrote, from his retreat at Bethlehem, that Judea overflowed with pilgrims, and that round about the holy sepulchre were heard sung, in diverse tongues, the praises of the Lord. He, however, gave but scant encouragement to his friends to make the trip. The court of heaven, he wrote to St. Paulinus, is as open in Britain as at Jerusalem, and the disorder which sometimes accompanied the numerous assemblages of pilgrims became such that several of the most illustrious fathers of the church, and amongst others St. Augustine and St. Gregory of Nyssa, asserted themselves to dissuade the faithful. "'Take no thought,' said Augustine, "'for long voyages. Go where your faith is. It is not by ship, but by love, that we go to him who is everywhere.'" Events soon rendered the pilgrimage to Jerusalem difficult, and for some time impossible. At the commencement of the seventh century, the Greek empire was at war with the sovereigns of Persia, successors of Cyrus, and chiefs of the religion of Zoroaster. One of them, Kosros II, invaded Judea, took Jerusalem, led away captive the inhabitants, together with their patriarch, Zacharias, and even carried off to Persia the precious relic, which was regarded as the wood of the true cross, and which had been discovered, nearly three centuries before, by the Empress Helena, whilst excavations were making on Calvary for the erection of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But fourteen years later, after several victories over the Persians, the Greek emperor Heraclius retook Jerusalem, and re-entered Constantinople in triumph with the coffer containing the sacred relic. He next year, in 629, carried it back to Jerusalem, and bore it upon his own shoulders to the top of cavalry, and on this occasion was instituted the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross. Great was the joy in Christendom, and the pilgrimages to Jerusalem resumed their course. But precisely at this epoch there appeared an enemy far more formidable for the Christians than the sectaries of Zoroaster. In 622 Mohammed founded Islam, and some years after his death, in 638, the second of the caliphs, his successors, 
Omar, sent two of his generals, Khalid and Abu Obeda, to take Jerusalem. For, to the Muslims also, Jerusalem was a holy city. Mohammed, it was said, had been thither. It was thence, indeed, that he had started on his nocturnal ascent to heaven. On approaching the walls, the Arabs repeated these words from the Koran, Enter we the holy land which God hath promised us. The siege lasted four months. The Christians at last surrendered, but only to Omar in person, who came from Medina to receive their submission. A capitulation concluded with their patriarch, Sophronius, guaranteed them their lives, their property, and their churches. When the draft of the treaty was completed, Omar said to the patriarch, Conduct me to the temple of David. Omar entered Jerusalem, preceded by the patriarch, and followed by four thousand warriors, followers of the prophet, wearing no other arms but their swords. Sophronius took him, first of all, to the church of the resurrection. Behold, said he, the temple of David. Thou sayest not true, said Omar, after a few moments' reflection. The prophet gave me a description of the temple of David, and it tallieth not with the building I now see. The patriarch then conducted him to the church of Sion. Here, he said, is the temple of David. It is a lie, rejoined Omar, and went his way, directing his step toward the gate named Bab Mohammed. The spot on which now stands the mosque of Omar was so encumbered with filth that the steps leading to the street were covered with it, and that the rubbish reached almost to the top of the vault. "'You can only get in here by crawling,' said the patriarch. "'Be it so,' answered Omar. The patriarch went first, Omar with his people followed, and they arrived at the space which at this day forms the forecourt of the mosque. There every one could stand upright. After having turned his eyes to left and right, and attentively examined the place, Allah Akbar, cried Omar, here is the temple of David, described to me by the prophet. He found the Sakra, the rock which forms the summit of Mount Moriah, and which, left alone after the different destructions of the different temples, became the theme of a multitude of traditions and legends, Jewish and Mussulman, covered with filth, heaped up there by the Christians through hatred of the Jews. Omar spread his cloak over the rock, and began to sweep it, and all the Mussulmans in his train followed his example. The mosque of Omar rose up on the side of Solomon's temple. The Christians retained the practice of their religion in their churches, but they were obliged to conceal their crosses and their sacred books. The bell no longer summoned the faithful to prayer, and the pomp of ceremonies was forbidden them. It was far worse when Omar, the most moderate of Mussulman fanatics, had left Jerusalem. The faithful were driven from their houses, and insulted in their churches, Additions were made to the tribute they had to pay to the new masters of Palestine. They were prohibited from carrying arms and riding on horseback. A girdle of leather, which they might not lay aside, was their badge of servitude. Their conquerors brooked not even that the Christians should speak the Arab tongue, reserved for disciples of the Koran, and the Christian people of Jerusalem had not the right of nominating their own patriarch, without the intervention of the Saracens. From the seventh to the eleventh century the situation remained very much the same. The Mussulmans, caliphs of Egypt or Persia, continued in possession of Jerusalem, and the Christians, native inhabitants or foreign visitors, continued to be oppressed, harassed, and humiliated there. At two periods their condition was temporarily better. At the commencement of the ninth century, Charlemagne reached even there with greatness of his mind and of his power. It was not only in his own land and his own kingdom, says Egenhard, that he scattered those gratuitous largesses, which the Greeks call alms, but beyond the seas, in Syria, in Egypt, in Africa, at Jerusalem, at Alexandria, at Carthage, 
Wherever he knew that there were Christians living in poverty, he had compassion on their misery, and he delighted to send them money. In one of his capitularies of the year 810 we find this paragraph, alms to be sent to Jerusalem to repair the churches of God. If Charlemagne was so careful to seek the friendship of the kings beyond the seas, it was above all in order to obtain for the Christians living under their rule help and relief. He kept up so close a friendship with Harun al-Rashid, king of Persia, that this prince preferred his good graces to the alliance of the sovereigns of the earth. Accordingly, when the ambassadors whom Charles had sent with presents to visit the sacred tomb of our divine Saviour, and the sight of the resurrection, presented themselves before him, and expounded to him their master's wish, Harun did not content himself with entertaining Charles's request. He wished, besides, to give up to him the complete proprietorship of those places hallowed by the certification of our redemption, and he sent him, with the most magnificent presents, the keys of the holy sepulchre. At the end of the same century, another Christian sovereign, far less powerful and less famous, John Zemises, Emperor of Constantinople, in a war against the Mussulmans of Asia, penetrated into Galilee, made himself master of Tiberias, Nazareth, and Mount Tabor, and received a deputation which brought him the keys of Jerusalem. And we have placed, he says himself, garrisons in all the district lately subjected to our rule. These were but strokes of foreign intervention, giving the Christians of Jerusalem gleams of hope, rather than lasting diminutions of their miseries. However, it is certain that, during this epoch, pilgrimages multiplied, and were often accomplished without obstacle. It was from France, England, and Italy that most of the pilgrims went, and some of them wrote, or caused to be written, an account of their trip. Amongst others, the Italian St. Valentine, the English St. Wallabad, and the French Bishop St. Arculf, who had as companion a Burgundian hermit named Peter, a singular resemblance in quality and name to the zealous apostle of the crusade three centuries later. The most curious of these narratives is that of a French monk, Bernard, a pilgrim of about the year 870. There is at Jerusalem, says he, a hospice where admittance is given to all who come to visit the place for devotion's sake, and who speak the Roman tongue. A church, dedicated to St. Mary, is hard by the hospice, and possesses a very noble library, which it oweth to the zeal of the Emperor Charles the Great. This pious establishment had attached to it fields, vineyards, and a garden situated in the valley of Jehoshaphat. But whilst there were a few isolated cases of Christians thus going to satisfy, in the East, their pious and inquisitive zeal, the Mussulmans, equally ardent as believers and as warriors, carried westward their creed and their arms, established themselves in Spain, penetrated to the very heart of France, and brought on, between Islamism and Christianity, that grand struggle in which Charles Martel gained, at Portiers, the victory for the cross. It was really a definitive victory, and yet it did not end the struggle. The Mussulmans remained masters in Spain, and continued to infest southern France, Italy, and Sicily, preserving even at certain points posts which they used as starting points for distant ravages. Far then from calming down and resulting in pacific relations, the hostility between the two races became more and more active and determined. Everywhere they opposed, fought, and oppressed one another, inflamed one against the other by the double feelings of faith and ambition, hatred and fear. To this general state of affairs came to be added, about the end of the tenth and beginning of the eleventh century, incidents best calculated to aggravate the evil. Hakim, Caliph of Egypt from 966 to 1021, persecuted the Christians, especially at Jerusalem, 
with all the violence of a fanatic and all the capriciousness of a despot. He ordered them to wear upon their necks a wooden cross five pounds in weight. He forbade them to ride on any animal but mules or asses, and without assigning any motive for his acts, confiscated their goods and carried off their children. It was told to him one day that, when the Christians assembled in the temple at Jerusalem to celebrate Easter, the priests of the church rubbed balsam oil upon the iron chain which held up the lamp over the tomb of Christ, and afterwards set fire from the roof to the end of the chain. The fire stole down to the wick of the lamp and lighted it. Then they shouted with admiration, as if fire from heaven had come down upon the tomb, and they glorified their faith. Hakim ordered the instant demolition of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and it was accordingly demolished. Another time a dead dog had been laid at the door of a mosque, and the multitude accused the Christians of this insult. Hakim ordered them all to be put to death. The soldiers were preparing to execute the order when a young Christian said to his friends, It were too grievous that the whole church should perish, it were better that one should die for all, only promise to bless my memory year by year. He proclaimed himself alone to blame for the insult, and was accordingly alone put to death. It is from this story of the historian William of Tyre that Tazo, in his Jerusalem Delivered, has drawn the admirable episode of Alindo and Sophronia, a fine example, and not the only one, of an act of tyranny and an act of virtue inspiring a great poet with the idea of a masterpiece. All the deeds of Hakim were without motive, says the Arab historian Makrisi, and the dreams suggested to him by his frenzy are incapable of reasonable interpretation. These and many other similar stories reached the West, spread amongst the Christian people, and roused them to pity for their brethren in the East, and to wrath against the oppressors. And it was at a critical period, in the midst of the pious alarms and desires of atonement excited by the expectation of the end of the world, a thousand years after the coming of the Lord, that the Christian population saw this way opened for purchasing a remission of their sins, by delivering other Christians from suffering, and by avenging the wrongs of their creed. On all sides arose challenges and appeals to the warlike ardor of the faithful. The greatest mind of the age, Gerbert, who had become Pope Sylvester II, constituted himself interpreter of the popular feeling. He wrote, in the name of the Church of Jerusalem, a letter addressed to the Universal Church, To work, then, soldier of Christ, be our standard-barrier and our champion. And if with arms thou canst not do so, aid us with thy words, thy wealth. What is it, pray, that thou givest, and to whom, pray, dost thou give? Of thine abundance thou givest a small matter, and thou givest to him who hath freely given thee all thou possessest. But he will not accept freely that which thou shalt give, for he will multiply thine offering, and will pay it back to thee hereafter. Some years after Gerbert, another great mind, the greatest among the popes of the Middle Ages, Gregory the Seventh proclaimed an expedition, at the head of which he would place himself, to go and deliver Jerusalem and the Christians of the East from the insults and the tyranny of the infidels. Such being the condition of facts and minds, pilgrimages to Jerusalem became, from the ninth to the eleventh century, more and more numerous and considerable. It would never have been believed, says the contemporary chronicler Raoul Glaber, that the Holy Sepulchre could attract so prodigious an influx, first the lower classes, then the middle, and afterwards the most potent kings, the counts, the marquises, the prelates, and lastly, what had never heretofore been seen, many women, noble or humble, undertook the pilgrimage. In 1026, William Trelfair, Count of Angoulême, in 1028, 1035, and 1039, Fulk the Black, Count of Anjou, in 1035, 
Robert the Magnificent, Duke of Normandy, father of William the Conqueror, in 1086, Robert the Frisson, Count of Flanders, and many other great feudal lords, quitted their estates, or rather their estates, to go and, not deliver, not conquer, but simply visit the Holy Land. It was not long before great numbers were joined to great names. In 1054, Liedbert, Bishop of Cambrai, started for Jerusalem with a following of three thousand Picard or Flemish pilgrims, and in 1064, the Archbishop of Mayence and the bishops of Spire, Cologne, Bamberg, and Utrecht set out on their way from the borders of the Rhine, with more than ten thousand Christians behind them. After having passed through Germany, Hungary, Bulgaria, Thrace, Constantinople, Asia Minor, and Syria, they were attacked in Palestine by hordes of Arabs, were forced to take refuge in the ruins of an old castle, and were reduced to capitulation. And when at last, preceded by the rumors of their battles and their perils, they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received in triumph by the patriarch, and were conducted to the sounds of timbrels and with the flare of torches, to the church of the Holy Sepulchre. The misery they had fallen into excited the pity of the Christians of Asia, and after having lost more than three thousand of their comrades, they returned to Europe to relate their tragic adventures and the dangers of a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Amidst this agitation of Western Christendom, in 1076, two years after Pope Gregory VII had proclaimed his approaching expedition to the Holy Land, news arrived in Europe to the effect that the most barbarous of Asiatics and of Mussulmans, the Turks, after having first served and then ruled the caliphs of Persia, and afterwards conquered the greater part of the Persian Empire, had hurled themselves upon the Greek Empire, invaded Asia Minor, Syria, and Palestine, and lately taken Jerusalem, where they practised against the Christians, old inhabitants or foreign visitors, priests and worshippers, dreadful cruelties and intolerable exactions, worse than those of the Persian or Egyptian caliphs. It often happens that popular emotions, however profound and general, remain barren, just as in the vegetable world many sprouts appear at the surface of the soil and die without having grown and fructified. It is not sufficient for the bringing about of great events and practical results that popular aspirations should be merely manifested. It is necessary, further, that some great soul, some powerful will, should make itself the organ and agent of the public sentiment, and bring it to fecundity by becoming its personification. The Christian passion in the eleventh century for the deliverance of Jerusalem and the triumph of the cross was fortunate in this respect. An obscure pilgrim, at first a soldier, then a married man and father of several children, then a monk and avowed recluse, Peter the Hermit, who was born in the neighborhood of Amiens about 1030, had gone, as so many others had, to Jerusalem, to say his prayers there. Struck disconsolate at the sight of the sufferings and insults undergone by the Christians, he had an interview with Simeon, patriarch of Jerusalem, who, recognizing in him a man of discretion and full of experience in affairs of the world, set before him in detail all the evils with which the people of God in the holy city were afflicted. "'Holy Father,' said Peter to him, "'if the Roman Church and the princes of the West were informed, by a man of energy and worthy of belief, of all your calamities, of a surety they would essay to apply some remedy thereto by word and deed.' Write then to our Lord the Pope and to the Roman Church, and to the kings and princes of the West, and strengthen your written testimony by the authority of your seal. As for me, I shrink not from taking upon me a task for the salvation of my soul, and with the help of the Lord I am ready to go and seek out all of them, solicit them, 
show unto them the immensity of your troubles, and pray them all to hasten on the day of your relief. The patriarch eagerly accepted the pilgrim's offer, and Peter set out, going first of all to Rome, where he handed to Pope Urban II the patriarch's letters, and commenced in that quarter his mission of zeal. The Pope promised him not only support, but active cooperation when the propitious moment for it should arrive. Peter set to work, being still the pilgrim everywhere, in Europe as well as at Jerusalem. He was a man of very small stature, and his outside made but a very poor appearance. Yet superior powers swayed this miserable body. He had a quick intellect and a penetrating eye, and he spoke with ease and fluency. We saw him at that time, says his contemporary Gilbert de Nogent, scouring city and town, and preaching everywhere. The people crowded round him, heaped presents upon him, and celebrated his sanctity by such great praises that I remember not that like honour was ever rendered to any other person. He displayed great generosity in the disposal of all things that were given him. He restored wives to their husbands, not without the addition of gifts from himself, and he re-established, with marvellous authority, peace and good understanding between those who had been at variance. In all that he said or did he seemed to have in him something divine, insomuch that people went so far as to pluck hairs from his mule to keep as relics. In the open air he wore a woolen tunic, and over it a serge cloak which came down to his heels. He had his arms and feet bare, he ate little or no bread, and lived chiefly on wine and fish. End of chapter 16, part 1